Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We are taking a break from the Chosen in Christ series. And we're going to do a message entitled Taught by the Spirit, which is taken from verse 13 of this text. And in the introduction, I'll explain what we're going to be talking about here. I'm going to start in verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I, brothers, when I came to you, did not come with excellency of speech, of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. But we speak wisdom among those who are perfect, or the word means complete, yet not wisdom of this world, nor of the rulers of this world that come to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, which God has hidden, predetermining it before the world for our glory, which none of the rulers of this world knew, because if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, which means in the Old Testament, this is recorded, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For who among men knows the things of man except the Spirit of man within him? So also no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. But we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit that is from God, so that we might know the things that are freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. There's our title right there, taught by the Spirit, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual, but the natural man, that is the one that's not born again, the one that's dead in their trespasses and sins, the one that's in the flesh, non-believer, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned, or in other words, understood. They're spiritually understood. And if you're not spiritual, you can't understand them. But he who is spiritual, referring to the believer, the one that's born again, judges all things or discerns or understands all things. Yet he himself is judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that we may instruct him, that we have the mind of Christ? 
as God's people, we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is something the scripture says that does take place. We experience that in time, and sometimes it's, uh, it's kind of slow going, you know, growth. I've heard people give illustrations of this. I remember Tim James talking about when he was younger. He wanted to grow taller, and he wanted to be a, like a muscle guy, you know, and so you, you lift some weights, and you eat, and you go look in the mirror, and where's it at, you know? Next day, you do it again. You can't see it. Most people that do that don't know what they're doing anyway. And sometimes they do it detrimentally and they go in reverse or they get hurt. But God's people, I don't think necessarily even chart their growth. They're not like keeping track of their works. And uh, it's like in Matthew 25 where God divided the sheep from the goats. And uh, we know the goats out of Matthew 7. They're tracking their works. They're saying, but Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? And in, in Matthew 25, he talked to the, the sheep. And said, come and enter in, you know, faithful servants. And they, there's like saying, what did we do? We didn't really do anything when, when works were talked about. So I don't think believers, they shouldn't be at least, they shouldn't be trackers and doing a one-up from especially each other. And we're going to talk about that. But they don't improve for improvement's sake is what I'm getting at. They do these things because the Spirit works in them, and they do it cheerfully. They do it out of love and thankfulness. This is the pure motive. And anything that deviates from that, there's going to be problems. But we grow in the grace and the knowledge of Lord Jesus Christ, and we know that we're brought to different levels of realization. And sometimes those levels, they're stagnant times. Sometimes there's growth spurts. You know, as far as our mind's concerned, our understanding and how... That affects our walk. But sometimes there are things that affect us deeply and profoundly. And I, and I just want to talk about like in an experience maybe that out of compassion that we have for people, we see to a certain extent a burden that we have for people and a sadness or a grieving for unbelievers, especially the religious kind. And this is... For example, for me, and I know it's different for different uh, people as far as our experience in time in the Christian life. It's not constantly sad. But there are times when something just booms in my face where I thought somebody might have been straight on the gospel. And they speak with their mouth what comes from their heart and they reveal what they believe. And it doesn't line up with the gospel. And if you thought that person was straight for a long time and you hear that... It, it happened to me about a month ago. I was almost physically sick talking to some people. And it affected me. And I, and I knew I, I can't, I'm, I'm not in fellowship with you. I didn't make a big deal about it. It just affected me. And it lasted like all day. And I still think back on it. And these religious people... What makes it worse is they, they use our language and they claim to believe what we believe. But they're utterly convinced by the foolishness in their mind of their own natural religious mind in reference to worldly wisdom, what we read in here about worldly wisdom, of that when it's all said and done, what makes the difference is something, no matter how great or small, something that they do. Even if, more subtly, even if they say, it's the Spirit of God working in me. 
You can say that and deny the gospel still. That's the subtlety of it. And that's what deception is. Subtlety is deception. Had a brother in Christ uh, this past week say something that was pretty profound, I thought. And this comes in the context of preaching the gospel to people. Those that profess to be Christian and, and you can see they're not getting it. He said the five scariest words that come from the professing Christian is, I already know the gospel. That, that's a shutdown. They have, they don't, you're saying, I want to, I want to talk to you about the gospel. I already know the gospel. What can get out to them? They've shut the door. You can talk. They might hear you physically. That means they're convinced that they're okay. And you know what? We used to be that way probably before we believed. I think we were all in that position. That's helpful to remember, to remember how to deal with people, right? It's, it's been said before, you see blind people walking down the street, uh, whether they have a dog, sunglasses, or a white cane, you don't go up to them and start mocking them. They're blind. They can't help it. So spiritually also, when we deal with people, I mean, when we deal with people in the gospel, if you want to, humanly speaking, if you want to talk about odds, you know, 99.9% .9 of everybody we talk to is going to be an unbeliever. And I expect them not to know the gospel. So going into that, as we grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and we mature, we should go into that with more love and compassion and patience, as the scripture tells us to. So what we, what we do as we grow, we do realize this and we know this. And this is, I think, the part that, like, is gut-wrenching. But it's a fact that we have to face, that the, there is a hopelessness within ourselves that we know that we cannot do only what the Holy Spirit can do. We can't do it. We can't change their minds. We can give them the gospel, give them the means, give them the truth. It doesn't matter. It's like Paul said early on. Your wording doesn't matter. I mean, we should. We our wording should be clear. It should be very clear, not veer from the truth. But I'm not gonna like. Maybe if I can fancy it up, I can uh, get uh, dramatic. I can get charismatic. It's gonna wake them up. <laughs> no, that don't work. That's worldly wisdom. And what does worldly wisdom do? That's what they do. They'll get charismatic. They get crazy with music. They do lights. They do fog. Anything they can do to reach the emotional foundation and the psychological foundation rather than just the truth that the Spirit would use. These are means and methods we have to, we have to keep straight in our minds. It's so easy to veer off if the gospel is not center in our minds. So, And also, obviously, we got to be reminded that they cannot receive the gospel that we trust, the gospel that we believe, because, as the text says, they can't receive the things of the Spirit because they're not of the Spirit. They are completely spiritually dead. And I'm just going to admit, going in, this is a bad illustration. <laughs> you hear a lot of people say that. A lot of preachers say, this is not a very good illustration, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> it's like zombies. If anybody watches zombie shows or seen zombie shows, 
the part in it that I want to relate that might be a little bit different is sometimes in zombie movies, it's a loved one that turns into a zombie, right? Spiritually speaking, we know that people are born dead. We've compared them at times to the living dead. You know, they're, they're, they're alive, they're walking around, we can hear them talk. They'll even talk about Bible stuff, but they are, they are not spiritually alive. So in contrast, we could say, you know, compare it to what we have visually seen on TV and in movies of, as zombies. But the, the more, the heart-wrenching in some of those movies are, as the story builds, a spouse or a child becomes a zombie. And the other party either has to leave, leave them behind, or shoot them, which would be putting out of their zombie misery. And I don't think if you shoot them in the head, they don't come back alive as a zombie. That's the way that, that's the rule of zombies. But you know what I'm saying? That connection there with that person, it's like the sadness involved. You know, the time invested, the, the care, the love, the memories. You can't do anything for them. It's too late. So spiritually speaking, we are hopeless. And it's up to the sovereignty of God through the power of the Spirit by the means of the gospel. All we do is preach the gospel and get out of the way. So there's that burden that we carry. But we can't let it overtake us. And here's the, here's the point I want to add to what I just said. We can't let it overtake us in two ways. One, we don't want to allow it to, this burden and this care and compassion and love, we don't want it to burden us down to the point and overtake us that would allow us to compromise the truth. Like I'm going to water it down so I can, I can make this zombie come alive. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You're not the Holy Spirit. You're going to do the opposite. As I said, I think a couple of weeks ago, when we open the door wider than God does to try to bring people in, we're only shutting the door. It's guaranteed. That's what we're doing. So we can't let it overtake us and burden us to the point where we compromise. And then secondly, which is related to the first, we can't let it overtake us because we know that God has sovereignly designed this whole purpose with every single person involved us and everybody else, whether it be salvation or condemnation. So there is that dual purpose of the word of God to either convert or harden. We're, we're not in control of that. So we have to be reminded of that. And you can, you can talk about it all day until you are like boots on the ground and you're dealing with somebody face to face. It's a different story because, especially if it's somebody close to you. It's a different story altogether. There's a deeper, more sound, solid comprehension of that when you experience that and then go back to the Word of God and are reminded, we're, we're not in control of this. We can't change them. So I've got four points in this message. The first one was lifted out of our text, and I stressed it in the reading, that the Spirit testifies of Christ alone. In verse 12, go back there. Verse 12, but we have not, this is speaking of believers when he says we, the church at Corinth, those that are saints at the church of Corinth, that messed up church, remember that place? But we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit from God, so that we might know the things that are freely given to us by God.
Now, freely given could mean God sovereignly, out of his freedom, sovereignly decides and purposes to give them. And it could mean, both of these things are true, that we don't pay for them. God's paid for them. So they're, free, they're for free at God's expense. These are all the spiritual blessings in Christ. These things we also speak, not in words of, of man's wisdom that teaches, but notice this, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. I want to make this distinction as we go through here, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. I want to make this distinction here about all those things. There were these two categories, the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. The foolishness of man and what man looks at our stuff and God's stuff as being foolish. The previous chapter talks a lot about that too. And I, I think I have some references to that if I remember correctly. So we're looking at this, and I want us to see this in the context. And I know there's all kind of atheists and agnostics out there. You deal with people that just flat out reject God. But the more deceptive kind are the kind that are religious. They're in a worse shape than the... I can prove that. They're in worse shape than the atheist, the religious people that don't believe the gospel. They're in a deeper pit, and they are the most deceived... So this is, this is God's wisdom in action here. To provide salvation, peace, joy, comfort for those that he loves. He will get in people's minds by the power of his spirit and change their minds and ensure they will believe the truth and they will not go back to the lie that they came out of, of the wisdom of the world. The Spirit of God teaches God's sheep that the gospel is not about you. It is has nothing to do with you making the gospel work. If it did, what would that bring? That would bring a false assurance. That's a deceptive false assurance. I want to read four verses. They're single verses. You don't have to turn there. John 15, 26 says, But when the Comforter has come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me. Christ speaking. The Spirit's task and office is to testify of Christ, to speak of Christ, to bear witness of Christ, shine the spotlight on Christ. John 16, 13 says, How be it? He, the spirit of truth, is come. He will guide you unto all truth because he shall not speak of himself. Why won't he speak of himself? He's too busy speaking of Christ, testifying of Christ. Now, here are two texts dealing with Christ himself that are connected to spirituality or the power of the spirit and the revelation of truth. John 5, 39. We're very familiar with this. Search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. And, and what is life eternal or eternal life? It's knowing God, right? He was talking to the scribes and Pharisees. They thought they knew God. He says, search the scriptures, and in them you think you have eternal life. But they, the scriptures, are they which testify of me, of Christ. Keep that in mind as we read what we read last week, John 6, 63. It is the spirit that makes alive. The flesh profits nothing. The words 
that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Remember I, I brought this up that the word spirit, the first part is Holy Spirit, and the spirit, the second part, are the words that Christ speak in the same original word in the Greek. Spirit, spirit is the same original word. That means that the words that Christ speak are just what he said. They're life. The Spirit of God quickens. The words I speak are life. In other words, they're life bringing. What does that mean? A common, a common thing we hear. My sheep, what? Hear my voice. Now we know that's not a that's not an audible thing. Let's not be stupid. It is the voice of Christ in the truth in reference to seeing and understanding by faith because we've been given life what God means by what he says. And all of that, I read all those verses there concerning the focus on Christ, the focus on the truth of his word spiritually to put it up against the wisdom of man because the wisdom of man is death there's a distinction there and we come out from darkness into into the marvelous light and we hear his voice secondly the gospel is not a man-made lower standard this is one of those things that is major that is a part of the sadness and aggravation of dealing with people that claim to profess they believe in the gospel when it's clear that they don't. What they've done is they have lowered God's standard. And this is what worldly wisdom does. The worldly wisdom of man will seek to gain God's favor in a way that naturally seems right, but is the very opposite of God's wisdom. The very opposite. And we know that the gospel that we hold to will clearly display by the authority of God's word that this gospel, and I think a person after they believe it can grow into this point and see this, that this gospel is an all the way gospel. I think all believers believe that, but this is like anything else in the gospel, you can grow in it. What do I mean by this is an all-the-way gospel? Or all or nothing. You see what I'm saying? Uh, some might say extreme. But what I'm telling you is the extreme is the standard. That's what I, Those that call from outside, that call what we believe is extreme, is the very standard. And what is that? There's three things. It's who God is, who we are, and who Christ is. God only demands absolute perfection. That's all he demands. Right? All the time. Only and always demands perfection. Now, if you say that and just leave it there and walk away and don't <laughs> do anything with it after that, it's just despair. Right? It's like we said, if you look at, there in that gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. If you look at that and say, that is God's character attribute of righteousness, and the sinner looks at that, and he, and he says, I, I can't do anything with that. That scares me. Just like this statement, God only demands absolute perfection all the time. Those things are equal with each other. The righteousness of God being the attribute of God. But we know that statement in Romans 1.17 is talking about a righteousness that Christ has merited and earned. 
that honors the attribute of God so that God can be both a just God and Savior when he justifies his people. And that perfection, those demands of God's law and justice, that perfection is met in Christ so God can have mercy. But just that line right there, God only demands absolute perfection all the time. The vast majority of false religion, they can't get past that right there. And this is very simple. This is a very simple concept. And this is part of his glory, that the standard of his glory is the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Christ. And man, by nature, never gets that right. So the worldly wisdom of false religion always lowers God's standard. Also, man, by nature, secondly, is totally depraved. Man has a problem. Man comes into the world with a problem, and he just builds on top of it. He's got no righteousness, no holiness, and no goodness. Man is not just a little bit damaged. He's not hobbling along to the um, urgent care. He's in the grave. He's dead. And not just that. He's not just in the grave, dead, not moving. He's actually positively or negatively, how you want to look at it, aggressively against God. He's not just neutral. He hates God. He's at enmity against God. He's not subject to the law of God, and neither indeed can be, the scripture says. So man, natural man, has not, uh, cannot, and will not ever keep the law, ever, in his natural state, or even after he's a believer. Christ is the only one that has ever kept the law, or ever will, or ever can. So we've got a problem, because the first problem says God demands perfection. We've got a problem coming in the world. We, we, we don't start with it. We don't end with it. All we do is, is add to it a worse problem. So our worst problem is, by nature, is that we're in this trap of Satan's lie, and that is our own righteousness. Our own wicked heart tells us, remember, sin got us into this, therefore my obedience has got to get me out, so i got to do more obedience. And each time you crank that energy towards more obedience, you're heaping on more condemnation because it's the most wicked abomination that you can do. So Christ is the only one that kept the law. The only one has ever kept it. Any law. But he kept the whole law. Not just in the letter, but in thought, in his will, his intention, his motives, perfectly. He kept the spirit of the law. He kept it, he magnified it, he honored it, he satisfied it. All for his elect, his sheep, his chosen people. So nobody can compete with that. God, as he looks down upon the children of men, everybody collectively, he sees that everybody naturally in the religious state is at competition with Christ concerning what Christ has accomplished. And they're not coming close. They might be striving. And if perfection is the standard, if you're failing, you're not progressing. <laughs> right? I don't care how much you talk about progressive this and that. 
you're failing. Stop. Look to the one that is the standard. That's what sanctified people do. That's what they're set apart to do. Turn to Luke 18. I'm going to read something there. And while you're turning there, I want to read something out of 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Now, this is, this is the fruit of our, of our natural problem right here. Paul says, We dare not make ourselves of the number who compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not, they're not wise. Our text, in the context of it, talked about wisdom versus foolishness. God's ideas versus man's ideas. Here's man's idea right here. This is, this is religion in action. Comparing ourselves among ourselves. That's what's going on right now in other churches. People are coming through the door and they're sizing themselves up with everybody else. I don't feel too bad because at least so-and-so is here and I know I'm better than he is. And, and the other so-and-so, he's not here, and I know that's why I'm better than him, because I'm here and he's not here. And there's seven ways to Sunday you can compare yourself by your others. I've heard people talk about the reason some people like to watch the news or listen to the news is because they talk about, it's all negative, they talk about bad people, and that feeds people's you know, self-esteem. At least I'm not like those people that they talk about on the news every morning. And there's new shock stories like, I'm glad I'm not like others, right? It's just a churning of the natural mind that builds up their self-righteous mindset. God says it's not wise. But, you know, the wisdom of the world says, no, this is it. This is the best thing. Luke 18, let's look at a real live example. Uh, in verse 9, there's a few other good ones in this chapter, but I want to just use one. Verse 9, Luke 18, 9, And he spoke this parable unto certain who trusted in themselves, notice that, that they were righteous and despised others. So he was talking to people, this parable, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That is, their own righteousness that is defined as self-righteousness. And it, what is the fruit of that? And despised others. Self-righteousness makes you despise other people because you're in competition with them. You'll tell on them. That's what self-righteousness does, a bunch of tattletales. And you feel good about doing it. It accuses and excuses. Hey, why'd you do that? What about him? He did worse, right? Adam, what'd you do? It was the woman. Hey, woman, what'd you do? It was the snake. But, you know, before that they hid. And God had to clothe them by a death. That's what we got to have. So he sets it up by telling who he's talking about here. And he says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a publican or tax collector. And these guys, tax collectors, the publicans, didn't have a reputation for being like the nice guys you wanted to hang around with. 
They rip people off, in other words. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. That's notable. Prayed with himself. But notice this. Here's this expression of religion. He's calling out to God, at least the God in his mind. And he's given seemingly credit to God. I thank you, God, that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this publican, this tax collector here. So he accused the one, and now he's getting ready to excuse himself. Check this out. I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. He accused one, he excused himself. And the publican, shifting gears, focusing on what was going on in his mind, the tax collector, standing afar off, and he would not lift up so much as his eyes to heaven, but he smote upon his breast, he hit, he hit his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, we've talked about this before, that in the original, the word merciful here is referring to, I need a mercy seat, which is referring to propitiation. I need, I need because I'm a bad guy, I see it. What this other guy is saying about me is true. <laughs> and he's probably thinking, I can, I can tell you way more than what this guy is telling about me. I know my own heart. I live with myself every day. I know the history of all my transgressions. He's right, but he's not even close to how bad I am. Therefore, I need a propitiation. I need something. Propitiation is in reference to, I need the law satisfied against me. I need the wrath of God appeased against me. Because I deserve the wrath of God. I need something to stop that. I need a mercy seat. The conclusion here, verse 14, I tell you this man went down, the one that said he needed mercy, went down from his house justified rather than the other, the self-righteous one. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. Now, I don't want us to read conditionality into verse 14. We know it's God that humbles people if they're humble. And we know that this man crying out for mercy is not the cause or ground of justification. At our church, this is basic. People that are listening and are new on video they, or sermon audio, they might not know that. But we could spend an hour right there in that one verse, you know, qualifying that statement that you don't do things to become justified or you don't make yourself humble. Thirdly, believers have had their conscience cleansed. They've had their conscience cleansed. Now, we know early on at the fall, the conscience was imparted to Adam and the rest of the human race. This is what's connected to eating of that fruit, to know good from evil, the knowledge of it. And people that don't know any better are thinking, hey, that's a benefit. We've got a conscience now. That's a, that's a head start. <laughs> oh, man. Haven't heard anything I've said so far if you think that, right? Unbelievers work off of the platform of their conscience through the law, which is sin, by the way. The natural conscience of unbelievers, the scripture said, is defiled. 
In other words, it's dirty. And it is also alive to sin. Right? At best, and I say it again, I stress it again. At best, the conscience can only bring only condemnation, fear, and guilt. That's the best it can do. Now, people might want to readjust that idea that we've got a jump start now that we've got a conscience. That's a benefit, right? No. No, it's a detriment. And Satan, because of Satan's lie, uses that conscience to entrap unbelievers. So here's a fact that might help lend to understanding that. The natural conscience, as we come to the world and we're born with that natural conscience, we have it. Uh, the scripture says that in, in Romans 2, that's the law written on the heart. That's the natural conscience so that we know, uh, you know whether we do good or bad. That law written on the heart to understand that we, we violate the law. There's the tablets of stone that the Jews had. And, and Paul said, you know what? The Gentiles, they don't need the tablets of stone. They have a law written on their heart. It's their conscience. And he that's where he said what happens is they accuse others and excuse themselves because innately inside of them, naturally, they have this conscience that causes them to do it when the conscience is stirred. And they do that. And this is what I'm going to point out, even without the work of the Holy Spirit to show them that, all men by nature have that conscience that works that way without the Holy Spirit's aid. So here's the thing connected to that. That natural conscience that does that cannot detect that worst problem, the worst problem they have, self-righteousness. It can't detect it. You know, if, if somebody kills somebody and they see somebody's laying there dead and other person that loved that person is hugging on that person crying, why'd you kill him? The conscience is like, oh, I, I messed up, <laughs> right? But that, but that conscience cannot detect a person trying to keep the law to establish a righteousness of their own. A conscience can't detect that that's what they're doing. So that's the worst thing they can do is try to establish a righteousness by obedience separate from Christ. So there's the, the subtlety of the deception of the conscience working against itself. So the worst thing it can do is what the person does. And the conscience says, way to go. And they keep doing it. The conscience, all right, keep doing that. Sin. Make up for it by doing good. Yeah, made the conscience feel better. That's self-reconciliation. That's wicked. That's the most wicked thing in the world that you can do. It's competing against the most glorious thing that the Father did through the Son. Competing with that only righteousness. It's like, nah, Christ, I'll do it. I'll do it. Watch me. That's what that's doing. And why is that happening? Verse 14 of our text, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit. So think about the natural man in connection with using his natural conscience as a platform to try to recommend himself to God by doing self-righteousness. 
that guy doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him, because his conscience is his guide. You know, I can't remember. Jiminy Cricket, what was he in? Pinocchio. Pinocchio, okay, yeah. Well, you've, some of you have seen it. That was his That was his theme. Let your conscience be your guide, right? <laughs> That's satanic. That's satanic in, in, in our context of what we're talking about. If your conscience is going to be your guide, you're going to go to hell. Because it's going to lie to you. Because it's defiled. And you're going to offer defiled stuff to God's nostrils and say, doesn't it smell good? That's what's going on. It's, it's foolishness to him. Neither can he know them. He doesn't understand spiritual things because they're spiritually understood. They're spiritually revealed to be understood. And if a person is not born again, he's deadened his trespasses and sins, he's not been quickened alive by the Spirit of God through the gospel, he's deaf, dumb, and blind spiritually. He's that zombie we talked about, hostile against the truth. It's an offense, right? The offense of the cross. So what does the sinner need? What do these kind of sinners need? The ones, the ones that we used to be when we were ignorant of the truth. We need to be dead to sin and alive to Christ. The zombies are dead to Christ and alive to the law. Give me the law. I'm dead to Christ. We need the opposite. We need to be alive to Christ and dead to the law through Christ. Let's go to Hebrews uh, chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to speed this up a little bit. Verse 14. We're going to talk about the conscience. Remember, look for the word conscience as we're going through here. How much more? Verse 14. How much more? It's comparing old, old covenant and new covenant. How much more shall the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself, speaking of Christ, without spot to God. Christ was the voluntary self-sacrifice to Christ. As compared to the old covenant, how much more the blood of the new covenant will it purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Because the old way didn't purge your conscience from dead works. It stirred it up to do dead works. Because that standard could never be reached. Look at uh, the next chapter. Um, in verse 14. Purge. The word purge, as far as I can understand. Uh, I know, like, through my working history as... Um, you're, uh, I was a pipe fitter uh, for 23 years. Certain lines get clogged up and you say, we need to purge that line. That means you need to clean it out. I, I brought this up. I've compared uh, uh, physical things with spiritual things, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Christ did that. But the idea of something backs up we know as far as our entrails or our bowels, if you have a blockage, there's constipation. And if there's a more serious blockage, uh, maybe a tumor and stuff backs up, say you don't go to the bathroom for 17 days, you'd probably be dead by then. It's a self and auto intoxication, 
right? The poisons go into your body and they're not released and it will kill you. If there's a blockage in your gall, uh, gallbladder, if there's, I've had kidney stones, there's a blockage there. You keep going on and on and on. Um, blockage in your artery, what's going to happen? Heart attack, right? Stuff has to keep flowing for you to live physically. So your conscience has to be purged for you to live. An uncleansed, defiled, clogged up, unpurged conscience will kill you because it will keep you thinking in the wrong direction. The direction of self-righteousness. Hebrews 10, look at verse 14. This is, uh, I think I might say this every week. This is one of my favorite portions of scripture, right? Here's another one right here. Um, remember, we're talking about the conscience. For by one offering, he, Christ, perfected forever those who are sanctified. Those that are sanctified by the love of the Father, by the election of the Father, set aside to, for Christ to be the representative and mediator and substitute of them. When he died for them, his blood perfected them forever, and they're sanctified. The Holy Spirit, verse 15, also is a witness to us. There's the Spirit of God again. Remember, that's what we started out in our context of our text, talking about the Spirit of God versus the wisdom of the world. The Holy Spirit bears witness to them. Well, yeah, of course, that's his job. He's to testify of Christ. For after he had said before, this is the covenant. Now, again, think about covenant. The God that can't lie, he's making promises, he's swearing, there's conditions. It's, it's all going to be good because the God that cannot lie, the God of truth, is the one involved here. And he's chosen the one, Christ, who's going to get the job done. He will not fail. The covenant that I will make with them after these days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. And he also adds something good. The sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. That is right there. That right there is something that false religion can't get either. That's what makes false religion churn and continue to bring money in. Because if you can make people guilty under the defiled conscience, you can keep people coming back and get being scared for multiple reasons. And that preacher, that liar, can keep those people under his thumb and lord over them and scare them to death that if they don't believe what he says, of course he doesn't believe the authority of the word of scripture alone, keep believing what I'm saying, come to me, don't ask anybody else outside, don't read the scripture, uh, I'm not transparent, so I don't ask me any questions, I'm the pastor, you pay me to study for you, all these weird ideas, and, they're, and they're, they vary from church to church, but... Scare tactics, somebody said. But the gospel says, the fruit of the gospel is, their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. I mean, otherwise, what's the good news? Um, now, where remission of, of these, these are talking about the sins, where these, these are, there are no more offering there is no more offering for sin. In other words, if, if this doesn't do it, nothing can. And when it does, there's no need of anything else. Easy. 
that's you think well duh well you know what that's what religion gets wrong that, that simple concept therefore because of this in other words brothers notice this having boldness to enter into the holy of holies I mean this was talking about a scary place not everybody can go in there right we know typically the, the high priest would go in once a year, and there's all kind of cleansing he had to do, and he had to do things right. God would kill him otherwise. They had to drag him out with a rope. So here's the perfect one that does this, and we'll talk about it here in a second. Christ the high priest is what we're getting at. But to go into that scary place, it says we can do this now to where we, we, we weren't even allowed in there before, but now we can go in there with boldness, no fear, enter into the Holy of Holies. How? By thinking, well, I did pretty good this week. I did, I did good. I sinned less this week. No, by the blood of Jesus. That's the only way. That's the standard. By a new and living way, which he has consecrated or set apart for us, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest, capital H, capital P, Christ, over the house of God. That's talking about the church, believers, the body of Christ. So after we see all this, verse 22, let us draw near with the true heart. In doubting, do we doubt when we do this? In full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled, what? From an evil conscience. Our conscience is no longer defiled. We're not using our conscience as a platform to gain ground with God. And our bodies, uh, having been washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Why? Because he is faithful who promised. Let us consider one another to provoke to love and to good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching. In other words, get together and talk about what he just talked about concerning the gospel and where your only hope is. Because if you don't, you're going to veer off. You're going to stray. You're not going to persevere. You might apostatize. Um, which means you believed in vain, as we looked at it a week or two ago. So after conversion, in other words, faith and repentance, after faith and repentance, God's people don't operate through the conscience by the law. They've been granted uh, what we can call gospel repentance. And this is, this is part of the aggravation and the sadness and, and what, it, what affects me and I know some of you that this idea here of, of <laughs> repentance from dead works and self-righteousness and knowing the righteousness of Christ in the gospel and the conscience and all the things that we've talked about so far is the most unheard of of doctrines in the word of God. When we speak it to people, it's, it's like, I never heard of that. I'm talking about Calvinistic, Sovereign Grace, Reformed people. They act like they've never heard it because they're so ingrained in a conditional salvation. 
And when we talk about repentance from dead works, they react and accuse of antinomianism. And what they look at as evidence of their regeneration, we're looking at and saying it's evidence of dead works. And it's a just a constant head-hitting battle. It's a basic foundational truth. So God's people now, they walk in the Spirit, live by faith, they're under the dominion of grace. Grace reigns through righteousness, which is Christ's righteousness. It's a total different identity altogether. It's not... It's not just a little bit different. It's not a, just a different perspective. It's completely new and different. It's a new and living way. And the other aggravating part that's sad is as you deal with people about these things, they'll take all these texts that you're showing them, they'll turn these texts completely on their head to mean the opposite of what they mean. Fourthly and lastly, uh, assurance is... The essence of faith. Assurance is the essence of faith. Look at it back in our text. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 15. But he who is spiritual judges all things or discerns or understands all things. Yet he himself is not judged um, by anybody else. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him. Now notice this. It just didn't say who has known the mind of the Lord and it didn't it didn't say that like who knows the complete mind of the Lord. It didn't say that. It actually adds a qualifier. Who knows the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him. People read that and they say nobody knows the mind of the Lord. That's not what it says. Who knows the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? And to add to it, proof of what I was getting at is we have the mind of Christ. If we have the mind of Christ, we know the mind of the Lord to whatever extent that means. I can't give you a percentage of what it means. But we have the mind of Christ. And that's saying a lot. The Holy Spirit said it. I know it's not nothing. It's a big deal to have the mind of Christ because you start thinking like God thinks. Our ways, we kind of get an idea of what God's ways are now. Where before, our ways were not his ways and our thoughts were not his thoughts. Well, we have the mind of Christ now. So I want you to hear these uh, couple points here in conclusion. And this is the part of that aggravating, sad fact and reality of, of as you deal with religious people. Um, so assurance is the essence of faith. This means assurance is in the object of God-given faith. My assurance should be in the object of my faith. Well, hopefully, if it's Christ, that would be great. If Christ is the object of my faith, there's my assurance. Stop there, and I should be fine. But if I fall back and operate upon the platform of the conscience under the law, I start working that way, my assurance is going to change really quick. It's going to falter. It's going to waver. It's going to go up and down. 
And again, if you bring it into the arena of perfection, your measuring device is completely off. It just don't work. You've got perfection versus lowering standard playing games with a conscience. It's just you're, you're wasting your time. It's, it's what's called unbelief. That's what it is. This means that where your faith lands is where you derive your assurance from and base your assurance on. And this also means that whatever you have assurance in will be your plea at judgment for proof or evidence of your salvation. This is starting to get scary because I see this all the time. People are talking about proof and evidence and their plea. They talk about how whole they are and how much they progressed. And um, they pat each other on the back too about it. And they team up against those that are preaching the gospel and, and accuse them of being antinomian. This means that whatever you plea at judgment will be your plea in your mind currently while you're alive before you die. So whatever's going on in your mind now, don't think, you know, well, I'm talking about sanctification. So right now I can kind of talk this way, but when I get to judgment, I'm just going to deal with God in reference to justification, that my plea is Christ's righteousness alone. Does that make sense? Does that match? <laughs> that's being double-minded. That's what that's called. And a double-minded man is unstable in how many ways? All of his ways. And that's according to the doctrine that they believe. Some of them will point it out authoritatively in their creeds. <laughs> or some dead theologian. So-and-so said such-and-such -such on page such-and-such. That great reformed theologian. I don't care. So God-given faith and repentance causes us to now, right now, judge by the gospel and not by the law. And we start with ourselves. We examine ourselves. Think about the beam versus the speck in the eye, right? Which is in reference to accusing and excusing, tattletaling and bragging, right? That's what it is, tattletaling and bragging, beam versus the speck. So people, the scripture pretty much sums it up, says people that judge by the law don't know what the law says, and they're not keeping the law themselves. I mean, that is just so obvious when... Um, you know, the scripture says that. Like, here are these people. They think they're teachers of the law. They don't know the law. They don't keep the law. Why do you submit to their authority? They don't know the first thing about it. So this is the one major difference between believers and the wisdom of the world. What does that mean now? So having said that, that means the ground of our salvation must be objective outside of ourselves not subjective, not something that we are, not anything of our own. And you know what? Some people might say, well, you're denying the work of the Spirit in you. The work of the Spirit in me is causing me to look outside myself. That's the point. If you don't have the work of the Spirit in you, it's going to cause you to look subjectively and to track things and plea things and bring those pleas to judgment and you're going to fail.
great the fall of that house will be. Sinking sand. So it better be outside yourself. Not just the ground of salvation. Not just justification. But the whole of salvation. From start to finish. It's got to be the merit of the blood and righteousness of Christ. We know the, that believers are said to be, uh, Colossians 2.10, complete in him. Complete. Complete. So this makes a person what the scripture calls a new man or a new creature. It's a new position, a new identity. Being accepted, in other words, being accepted in Christ alone. As it says, I, th I think it's in Ephesians, created in righteousness and true holiness. Not fake holiness. It's interesting that the Spirit of God added that word true in there. So what does this mean? It means we don't have a personal righteousness, a personal holiness. In other words, subjectively, there's nothing good in us. Paul said that. In our flesh dwells no good thing. It's not of our own, but it's only to be found in Christ. The result of that is believers are looked at by God as being holy and blamable and irreprovable in his sight. Colossians 1.22 So God's people, again, beating a dead horse, are only and always accepted in Christ. And that is the wisdom of God through his free and sovereign grace in Christ. That's the wisdom of God. And the world hates it. The worldly wise hate it. They'll even use... Sovereign Grace, Calvinist Reform, title. I believe in Sovereign Grace, but it can't be that free. They look upon it as foolishness. And we stick to our guns and say, yes, it is that free. And that antinomian, they'll call you antinomian. Calvinist, antinomian. Spiritual sticks and stones, you know. They shouldn't hurt us. Uh, I mean, we read and we should expect it. And usually that should be a, an indicator that we're saying the right thing. I'm going to stop there. I, there was a ton of other stuff left, but past time. Questions, comments?